well, he didn't do anything for like 30 years. Yeah. Now he's back. Now he's back in the circle. Yeah. And what's interesting about him is that he won bronze in Montreal Olympics <laughs> in swimming. Yeah. This guy sounds awesome. <laughs> I thought he was smart because my mom used to like him as well until he opened his mouth and started saying You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today I have with me a fellow Cree student, Audrius Rikas. Audrius is uh, from Lithuania, educated in France, and has now found his way to Central Texas. Is that all correct? I usually mess up my introductions. Yeah, I went for undergraduate in France, <clears throat> in Paris, and yeah, I, I've been here an exchange student a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. fell in love with Texas, decided to learn more about Eastern Europe here. So. Hopefully we have some patriotic Texas listeners who have won their hearts already. <laughs> so today, obviously, as a Lithuanian, there is a Lithuanian election coming up. So walk me through the bulls of the election. Who... Are the main powers, what are their slants, and what are the larger implications? So <clears throat> this year, we're actually having three elections in Lithuania. We're in the middle of one of them. We have the local council's elections, which are, which are less consequential from an international point of view. But we're also having a presidential election that's happening at the same time as European elections, elections to European Parliament. And um, while the European election is usually seen as not as something important, um, the presidential election is definitely the biggest event of the last couple of years since the last presidential election, because um, even though the president of Lithuania, according to the constitution, cannot belong to a political party, he or she, um, because we have actually a woman president right now, um, has the mandate of the whole nation because he or she is elected directly. So um, the president of Lithuania exerts actually a lot of, let's say, symbolic power, influential power. The president of Lithuania has to give his or her approval on the minister cabinet, even though uh, parliamentary elections take place um, on different years. Mm -hmm. And um, also the president of Lithuania forms the foreign policy of Lithuania, according to the constitution. So whoever is elected the president of Lithuania will have symbolic power, will represent Lithuania in foreign affairs, will form foreign policy. Talking about political parties, the institution of president is kind of peculiar because our last two presidents um, have been independents. So even though Lithuania has multiple political parties due to our proportional voting system for the parliament, I would say that the most important parties at the moment are the conservatives, Christian Democrats, and a party called Lithuanian uh, Peasants and Greens, which is kind of like a Polish-style law and order party. Is this sort of a populist conservative party? Yes. Um, interestingly enough, they're pretty left-wing economically. I actually agree with some of their policies, but socially they're incredibly conservative. Mm-hmm. Hard on crime, hard on drugs, even like um, life drugs. So they're sort of the anti-establishment group, but also has some like sort of far-left uh, social means. Yeah. So just to contrast their social and their economic stance, they this party has been concerned about growing drugs prices in Lithuania, uh, like medicine. So they want to create state-owned pharmacies where they could control prices of drugs. They also want to create, let's say, a state commercial bank because they think that the banking sector in Lithuania is um, not functioning well. On the other hand, um, they are anti-abortion, hard on crime, as I said, pro-Catholic church. Interestingly enough, pro-European and pro-NATO, 
which is kind of different from classical populist movements in Europe. Um, there are also two more parties that are worth mentioning. The big One of the biggest party and still biggest party in numbers in Lithuania is the Social Democrat Party, classical left, progressive socially, but they actually lost a lot of votes recently to the um, peasant party. And there's also the liberal party that people predicted that it would be the number one party in Lithuania by 2019, but they got involved in some corruption scandals and lost most of their support there. And uh, most of these parties actually have their candidates for the presidential elections. The uh, Peasants Union has Solis Kvernalis, current prime minister, former chief of police, very hard on crime, very socially uh, reactionary. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really have a good platform, though, because he was involved with two political parties before, and he's just a popular figure, so he will just do whatever his party tells him to do. He doesn't really have a platform. He said the election is in two months. He said he hasn't written his program yet, and he doesn't know what he'll promote in the election. Conservatives have a candidate named Ingrida Shimonita, former finance minister, pro-austerity, um, uh, she has some international experience um, because I think she used to work in the Ministry of Finance and was involved in a lot of international projects, but also pro-European, pro-Western. Um, and the Social Democrats have their own candidate as well, Vitanis Andrukaitis, former. He was actually the EU commissioner for food and health standards up until recently. The most progressive candidate so far, as far as I'm concerned. He's not very popular because people call him communist because he's left economically. Mm-hmm. Um, also he's, I would say the most pro-European candidate right now. He's pro-EU institutions, pro-integration. I would say he supports two-speed Europe. So two-speed Europe is this idea elaborated recently by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, among others, how the European countries that want to integrate more should do it. So form a fiscal union, perhaps a common military, um, and the countries that don't want to do it don't have to do it. And they're still in the single market, but they're just not as integrated. I think he's the only candidate who's actually explicitly would say that he supports that. Mm-hmm. And then we have two independent candidates. One is the favorite, um, Gitanas Noseada. Another person who doesn't have real opinions, former chief banker of a Scandinavian bank in Lithuania, doesn't really have any opinions, but somehow he's very popular. Um, and... The one that I mentioned to you before our conversation, Arvidas Josaitis, former bronze winner mm-hmm. <laughs> in swimming in Montreal Olympics, super conservative, anti-EU, anti-West in general. That was know. an incredible answer. <laughs> you <laughs> spoke more about Lithuanian politics than anyone ever spoken with. So, I mean, so you'd say the general pulse um, in Lithuania right now is a generally anti-establishment, anti-EU idea, or do you think there's still sort of that push and pull between what the country's future going to look like? Um, I think Lithuania is different from other Central Eastern European countries because there, in the last 20 years, there has been a cons- actually even more, I would say since we gained the independence, there has been a consensus that we should be pro-Western, pro-European and do everything we can. According to Eurostat, um, Lithuania is the most pro-European country. There's most support in, for European Union in Lithuania. To be honest, I feel like most people don't know like what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it's so, but it tells something. And all of the candidates, except for Josidas, are pro-European, pro-NATO. Um, our last president was also... I have my reservations about her. I don't like her per se due to her domestic policies, but she has been overall pro-Western, mm-hmm. pro-European. Uh, the president before her was 
American Lithuanian actually who moved to the U.S. in '44 due to Soviet occupation, then worked under Reagan actually oh, really? uh, as one of his environment uh, uh, environmental politics officers. Uh, well, I didn't do a lot in that role. What's up? Reagan's environmental policy, I think, is probably pretty sparse. So that was one of the Yeah, idea. I think Lithuanians are more more liked him because he worked for Reagan rather right. than for environments. Mm-hmm. Um, the president we had before this one was actually the only president in Europe who has been removed through impeachment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he was, interestingly enough, his rhetorics was also pro-European, pro-NATO, but there were allegations that he was funded by Russian mm-hmm. money. Um, and the president before that, so the, our first president, was former first secretary of the Lithuanian Communist Party, nonetheless signed documents that asked NATO to include Lithuania in the alliance and started this integration process. So I think overall there has been a consensus. And top three candidates, so the Peasants Union candidates, the independent banker and the former finance minister, they're all pro-EU, except for Yosaitis, who's anti-EU, but... As of now, I don't think he's that dangerous. Um, just, I think, hopeful for Europe and for Eastern Europe, for sure, for pro-European elements in Eastern Europe, because he has some popularity and under right circumstances, he could become an uh, incredible force, but he's not gaining enough traction to go into the second round, I think. Hmm. Um, he pulls it around 8%. Okay. Yeah. So nothing to worry about there. For now. And do you see sort of Lithuania's political trajectory matching other Baltic countries or... Is Latvia and Estonia having higher Russian population being a little more approximate, pushing more pro-NATO policies, or do you think they're even being pulled? I think all of the Baltic states are incredibly pro-NATO and pro-European, but as you rightly pointed out, ethnic compositions of the states have huge effects on how politics take place in those countries. So let's take Latvia. Um, even though not a lot of people would say that, um, Although it's not even taboo, I would say, but really people vote either for Latvian parties or for the Russian parties. Mm-hmm. The biggest opposition party in Latvia for probably 20 years now has been the Harmony Party, which is uh, just like a pro... They actually don't position themselves as pro-Russian per se, but it, it's a party full of uh, Russians. Um, um, their um, leader is the mayor of Riga, the capital mm-hmm. of Latvia. So you have more or less this divide, Latvians versus Russians, and whatever Latvian party gets elected, they will be pro-Western, sure. usually. Estonia, I would say, is more like Lithuania, although there has been a even more, li- let's say, classical European liberal consensus there. They have liberal governments for over 20 years now. They're incredibly notorious for having really young prime ministers uh, and young presidents, um, at least the... the the current president. Mm-hmm. Um, although there was actually an election in Estonia, I think, on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, an extreme right party gained a lot of votes, oh, really? whose platform is Estonia for Estonians. Um, I don't know enough about it to mm-hmm. have a, uh, to, to make like a informed comment on this, but I think it's somewhat war, worrisome. But Russian speaking parties and don't have an, a lot of traction, I think, right. in Estonia. And so do you view Lithuania mirroring, you know, not quite like an Orban level of democratic backslide, but definitely just a more sort of centralization, a little more conservative idea, but still adhering to the national institutions? Yeah, I would say that. um, So the government we have now, uh, the 
Peasants and Greens Union. It's in many of its policies, it's very similar to Law and Order and Arben's Fidesz party, if I'm not mistaken. They they actually try well in depending on who you talk to, but as far as I'm concerned, they try to impose their own um, control of the tele of national public television and the court system indirectly, but they definitely did some things to do that. But, and I think people actually, it's ironic because people actually like that. They look at Poland and they think the law and order is doing a good job, but they actually really focus on what's happening in the country as opposed to what's happening outside the country. So these parties can still be pro-EU and basically guarantee themselves. Oh, that's another thing, actually. Um, a huge part of the Lithuanian budget is made up of EU dotations, which I think kind of forms our foreign policy. So... Um, you know, the government might have some, some anti-EU sentiments, but they are very localized. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no Brussels blaming to the same extent as in Poland, I right. would say, uh, which is interesting. And I think, I mean, Brexit to some extent has kind of broadened the idea of how people dislike the EU, but it's also made it a lot clearer, like the things that EU will do for a country and that exiting it is just far more pernicious than it might've seen five years ago. Yeah, I would. I, um, I, I don't think Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, would have been elected if Brexit didn't happen, mm-hmm. or Trump would not have been elected for that matter. Really? Um, Macron is interesting because he ran on a really pro-EU platform, pro-integration, two-speed Europe, European army, and he won. People will say nowadays that he won only because he was in the second round against Le Pen, mm-hmm. but I think there was more to that. He won the first round, uh, actually, which gives him a lot of legitimacy and... Um, I think he had a lot of support in Germany, uh, the Benelux countries, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, Lithuania or like the Baltic states. Although I don't know, actually, Baltic states have very distorted vision of Western Europe in some ways. I think. What do you mean by that? Uh, they will say that the French government is pro-Russian, even if, let's say, François Hollande's administration mm-hmm. was probably the toughest right. administration on Russia in EU in a while. But actually, recently, uh, Emmanuel Macron shared this letter across Europe called for the renaissance of Europe. It's been published in literally all European languages and in all uh, European newspapers. Um, So there's a new debate, I would say, about integration of EU. And I think Brexit definitely helped us to push towards that because Great, Great Britain is not only someone who bashed on EU all the time and wanted to leave and now have a lot of trouble because of that, but they were also the ones who were blocking most of the pro-integrationist reforms. Uh, And now I actually know some uh, French-British citizens who voted for Brexit precisely because they thought that getting rid of Britain would allow for more integration Mm -hmm. in the EU. Um, Yeah, I assume French and Germany are upset by the optics of it, but I think at the end of the day, I think Italy actually might feel like they're benefiting the most because it's just centralized power you know, towards the actual heart of Europe instead of London. Um, but yeah, I mean, that'll be an interesting course that's going to resolve itself hopefully in the next three weeks, but probably not. So how does this all, I mean, I know your focus of your study isn't specifically on modern Lithuanian politics, although you know enough about it that it might as well be. What are you going to be focusing on in the next two, three years at UT? Um, <clears throat> for now, I'm actually, I became recently really interested in explaining foreign policy through competition between institutions within a country. It's more of a political science topic, although I'm trying to put a narrative towards it on it so that I could convert it more into a history topic. 
Polit- so you don't have to do the math involved in the political science? Yeah, and I think also political science moved a lot from qualitative towards quantitative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the work I'm inspired by is um, Essence of Decision by Graham Allison, who was a scholar in Harvard, as far as I, I remember, who wrote a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis and about how various institutions within the U.S., um, like the military, like the line military, the Navy, uh, CIA all competed for their own policy outcomes in this crisis, which basically shaped President Kennedy's decision hmm. um, to block Cuba with U.S. Navy, which in reality was not as effective as, let's say, bombing um, Cuban um, missile launch sites. So I'm kind of trying to look into how you could adapt that to the Soviet politics of the 1980s, specifically the Afghan war. Um at the moment, I'm working on a paper that looks at how perhaps this institutional dynamic existed in the United States and how that was shaped by what the Soviets did in Afghanistan and, and then consequently how uh, U.S. outcomes on Soviet actions influenced institutional dynamics within USSR. We'll see. It's a work in progress. Well, everything's a work in progress right now. Um, so I usually ask my guests uh, towards the end of our conversation. You mentioned the book you were just talking about. But what's sort of the last great thing you've read or seen that is influencing your work, your politics, or has nothing to do with it, just something you enjoy? It's a hard question. I won't lie. I mostly only read things we read for classes. Well, and, at least uh, you do read the assigned reading. Yes. And I will say that the book that Professor Surya signed, Stefan Zweig's Memoirs mm-hmm. of Yesterday, was particularly influential for me thinking about cosmopolitan Europe, um, perhaps Europe that doesn't exist anymore, but Europe where that was really truly the center of culture, global center of culture, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, I think. But um, I think he presented a vision of European unity, European intellectual unity, which didn't necessarily, would not have necessarily translated into the EU of today, but um, which definitely try to form a EU like European identity, which we're moving away from today, I would say. So you don't see too many similarities between pre-war cosmopolitanism and sort of how we interact with EU today? <clears throat> I'll say one thing. I think um, the Europe of Stefan Zweig is Europe of elites, as we discussed in class a lot. Um, I think a lot of things that existed in Stefan Zweig's Europe exist in Europe of today, but it exists on a much larger scale than ever before. Um, you have millions of people who are highly educated, perhaps as obviously Stefan Zweig and his contemporaries were at the top of their intellectual circles. But I feel like there's probably a hundred, if not a thousand times more people like Stefan Zweig today in Europe, which makes the competition more intense and which not necessarily allows for, um, cultural output to exist to exist to the same extent sure. as in Stefan Zweig's year because Stefan Zweig had less competition mm-hmm. was easier for him perhaps I mean I don't want to say it was easy for him to publish books but he competed perhaps with you know 50 Austrian writers instead of 5,000 Austrian okay. writers which he would have to do today I think in many ways Europe of today is better because we live in an ideal world we have highly educated workforce in every field um same time, maybe perhaps sometimes we're too critical of each other right. because of this enormous competition. Well, there's a diversity of intellectualism that didn't exist in Zweig's world. It seems like, I mean, he would mention some great poet and expect everyone who knew anything about poetry to know this person. And it's, you know, 
your circle of influencers is much smaller than what the working class world actually reflects. Um, well, Audrius, thanks for coming on the show. My final question is if the Dallas Mavericks acquired Jonas Valanciunas, how many games would you go to next year? Probably, uh, I know, probably just one. <laughs> Being a Lithuanian in the U.S. is good because when you go to an NBA game and if there's a Lithuanian player, you'll mm-hmm. definitely get to talk to him <laughs> because, you know, you're Lithuanians. <laughs> Are there any other league besides uh, Valanciunas? Adamant to Sabonis. Oh, of course. Well, he's from Portland. I don't count him. He's plays for the Lithuanian national team. That's true. Um, we might have some drafts in the some. NBA draft, but I'm not sure about that. What about Luca? Are you are you a believer? I mean, he's. I've never seen a player like him. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen. To be honest, right? <laughs> I mean, that's he, a good or bad influence. You think? What's up? Porzingis will be a good or bad influence. You think? I think Porzingis is humble enough to be a good influence. Well, we'll see. All right. Thanks for coming on. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.